Welcome to Mind Tricks Radio, where we'll explore contemporary topics in psychology through interviewing creative and innovative thinkers in the field. I'm your host, Dr. Aaron Kaplan. Thanks for tuning in. Dr. Brock Eide is co-author of the best-selling book, The Dyslexic Advantage and the Mislabeled Child. He is an international authority who has lectured and written widely on dyslexia and learning differences and has been a consultant to the President's Council of Bioethics and a visiting lecturer at the Stanford Graduate School of Education. He is co-founder of the 501c3 nonprofit dyslexicadvantage.org and is currently CEO of NeuroLearning SPC, a company that makes dyslexia screening test app and other tools to help people with dyslexia. Brock, welcome to the show. Thanks very much, Aaron. I'm really grateful that you've invited me to be here. Well, I'm really excited to have you. I just want to let you know I really enjoyed reading your best-selling book, The Dyslexic Advantage. Wow, what an eye-opener. I was just sort of blown away by your perspectives on dyslexia. Thanks very much. We were fascinated with the topic ourselves, and that was uh, how we came to write the book, and I'm glad that rubbed off. Right. So I'm really looking forward to digging into it a a bit. We'll talk a bit about the physiology of dyslexia and then about this concept of looking at it that you call MIND or M-I-N-D and dig into those pieces a bit today. Before we get to that, though, I'd really like to hear a little bit more about your personal background as a researcher and a physician and kind of where you came from to become interested in this topic of dyslexia. Sure. Uh, My wife, Fernand, and I are both physicians, and uh, we met during our residency at the University of Pennsylvania back in the late 1980s. And we were in the process of kind of moving up the academic ladder. We were working together at the University of Chicago in our our various fields. When uh, our lives were changed, as happens with many people, by having children. And our children, as they got a little bit older, were uh, demonstrating that they were approaching learning in somewhat different ways than the mainstream. And that got us really interested in trying to figure out what was going on with them. And Fournette uh, at the time was a professor in the Department of Neurology at the medical school. And so she really did a deep dive into the basic sciences literature around uh, cognitive processing and neural development in children and found a lot of things that we felt were very relevant to the way our kids were developing, but weren't kind of percolating their way into the therapeutic community in an organized fashion yet. And uh, when we were trying to figure out some of the reasons why, you know, our son at that time was uh, doing things like, you know, failing finger painting and walking in line and circle time in, uh, in preschool, you know, we started to make the round like many parents do of different specialists, each of which seemed to be looking at things from a different perspective. And we had a really hard time finding somebody who approached things from a holistic perspective. And so over the course of a number of years, and as we added another child to the mix and a different set of issues, we ended up becoming so immersed in this that we decided actually to leave academia and and set up on our own in a learning practice. And so For the last 20 plus years, we've been specializing now in working with uh, individuals and and families with with learning differences. So we initially started working with people with learning challenges of all type. And over the course of probably half a dozen years, we became increasingly more fascinated with dyslexia because I think the thing that really stood out to us is that we were not only seeing a consistent pattern of challenges with reading and spelling and things like that, but we were seeing a consistent pattern of strengths in the families that were coming to us with children with dyslexia. They all seemed to be telling us very similar stories over and over again. And we were meeting people with talent sets that seemed to be echoes of each other so frequently that uh, that really got us interested in this whole topic and got us looking deeper into what was known about talent sets that might be associated with challenges in dyslexia. Well, that's really cool, Brock. So you did what a lot of parents do is you d- you d- dove deep into your own kids and trying to understand them to be better parents and be better understanding. And then it led to a whole career diversion for you, it sounds like. That's yes. really awesome. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about dyslexia first off. I know that that's a term that's that a lot of people know it, but I'm not sure if not if many people really understand what that means. So in the traditional dyslexia literature, how do we define that and understand it? 
The most commonly used professional definitions now, so there's the ones that are codified in statutory law and in the, in the uh, diagnostic manuals, basically focus on the fact that dyslexia is difficulty acquiring fluent mastery of reading and spelling, usually caused uh, by difficulties with the way that the brain processes the sounds that make up words. And it represents a kind of a clear break from the general level of cognitive ability of a person. So more difficulty reading and spelling than might be expected from somebody who is you know, suitably bright enough to be able to, to do it in other respects. And that's kind of where the, the main definitions are, at least in the United States. If I had to define it myself, I would focus on the fact that, uh, you know, first of all, dyslexia is not the same as reading disorders in general. It's a subset of reading issues. And it uh, is characterized by difficulties moving in and out of the transition from the spoken language to the written language. So both the process of turning the sounds that one hears in spoken words into the symbols, letter symbols on the page that will represent them in words on the page, uh, which, which is called encoding, you know, or, or spelling or writing. And then the process of decoding or taking the printed symbols on the page and translating those back into the, the spoken words that they're meant to convey. So it's really that translational step where the issues come in. And that can be both in the process of mastering the code and using the code, independent of the time it takes you to do that, and then the ability to acquire fluency uh, in that code. And I think mm -hmm. um, things that have become obvious over time that I think it's also really important for people to recognize is that there's not simply a single gene that's responsible for dyslexic reading and spelling problems. So you know, during this, uh, this last 30 years, when the big land rush to, to uh, identify the entire human genome and, and uh, map all of the genes and then find out what everything, you know, is, is responsible for, there was a hope in some parts that maybe they could find a particular gene that was responsible for dyslexia. But it turns out that that's really not the case. There are not even any single candidate genes that have a very high uh, relation to dyslexic reading and spelling problems. There's some that are that are loosely associated with it, but none that have a very dominant impact. Instead, there's at least five different lower level processing functions in the brain that have been identified that correlate with reading and spelling problems that are dyslexic in nature. And they work together in kind of an additive fashion. So those would be problems with processing the way that the word sounds go together to make up words, uh, working memory, how much information you can keep on your kind of brain desk at one time in order to be able to process retrieval or naming speed, which is sort of how quickly you can pull up verbal information in response to visual symbols, visual attention, or how well you can uh, separate closely compacted visual images on a page, and then something called procedural learning, which I think we'll probably talk about a little bit later, but that's basically how quickly you can automatize processes that are mastered through practice so that they become fluent and automatic. And the more of those different kinds of issues that an individual has, the more they'll have dyslexic reading and spelling challenges. So it's really important to understand dyslexia is not a yes or a no issue, it's a more or a less issue. And on either end of the sort of dyslexic spectrum, one shades on the one end into the kind of normal general reader and on the other end into uh, more significant language uh, challenges. So it's good to think of, of more or less dyslexic rather than yes or no dyslexic. And it's also important to remember that we're talking about really 20% of the population uh, in the United States. So this is, not, this is not a minor thing that affects only a few people, but it, it really is part of all of our extended families. Sure. It sounds like it's like a lot of things that we study and look at in psychology that behavior and cognition exists on a continuum. It's not necessarily an on or an off or present or absent type of thing. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So you talk a little bit in your book about some different brain structures and areas that I thought were pretty interesting. And then when you go into later why these are significant for the different ways with people with a dyslexic processing style process things. I think it might be interesting to touch upon them a little bit. 
One thing that you mentioned a little bit is this idea about left brain, right brain differences. So could you tell us a little bit about that and why that might be significant in understanding dyslexia? Yeah, and this takes a little bit of qualification because it's sort of not the standard kind of left brain, right brain sort of generalization that's kind of entered into uh, the general sort of public consciousness after, you know, Roger Sperry's initial work working with people who'd had uh, surgeries that, that severed their intrahemispheric commissures, the commissurectomy surgeries that people used to get for, uh, for certain kinds of uh, mental issues. So people can make very broad sort of generalizations. The left brain does this, the right brain does that. That's not quite right because the brain tends to do almost everything in a cooperative fashion between left and right. Nevertheless, there is some validity to the concepts, but it's, it's more that in the right hemisphere, connections tend to cover broader territories, and that's both physically and also sort of conceptually. So you tend to make more associations between areas in the brain that are doing different kinds of tasks uh, and look at sort of the large scale, big picture features of a task, kind of gestalt functioning, as opposed to fine detail functioning. I think that that sort of contrast between fine detail and big picture gestalt is a really super important one to keep in mind uh, with dyslexia. And also it's, it's generally applicable between the left and the right. And one of the interesting things that was found when they started looking at dyslexic brains was that there's a, there's a known difference between pyramidal cell structure, these kind of connecting uh, neurons in the, in the right hemisphere of the brain when compared with the similar cell type in the left hemisphere of the brain. The ones in the right side tend to have a broader field of connectivity. So they tend to send out axons to greater distances and make connections with, with similar cells in, in different parts of the brain that are further apart physically and that are doing different sorts of tasks. When looked at, dyslexic brains tended to be, to have more of that uh, characteristic of the right hemispheric structure than of the left hemispheric structure. So right away, uh, they got into this notion of broader fields of connectivity, which again, associate with this kind of big picture gestalt versus fine detail processing. Sure. And I'm guessing as we go forward, you'll make the argument that that's where the person with a dyslexic processing style, the dyslexic brain has their strengths. Whereas what they're not so great with is those more fine-tuned focused aspects of cognition that you might see in the left brain functioning. Yes. Yeah. It's a, it's a theme that comes up again and again and again in our work with dyslexic people. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit. I was really fascinated by this idea of the mini columns and spacing between them in the brain. Uh, that was just a really fascinating piece of what you were talking about. Could you just explain a little bit about that? Yeah. So in the human gray matter of the, of the cerebral cortex, there are six cellular layers that are stacked together basically just like one sheet on top of another and, and wrapping around the brain. So they, they go into all the little crevices and cracks around the folds or the gyri of the brain. But if you go in essentially perpendicular to the surface of the brain at any location, you'll pass through six layers of these, of these gray cells. The cells are oriented vertically. So again, you're passing the research scientists who who did this original work, literally took glass pipettes with kind of cylindrical or hollow tubes, passed them in perpendicular to the surface of the brain and towards the core of the brain, and then connected with, with the little sections in there. And they found that uh, when they pulled out little cores from these pipettes and analyzed them, that the cells were were kind of uh, oriented vertically together with each other. And when they connected the pipettes with recording electrodes to look at the uh, electrical function of the brain, and then they stimulated the brain in different ways, either by having the animals that they were recording do tasks or by putting in electrical stimulations of their own on the surface of the brain, they found that the cells in the vertical structures, in the vertical columns with in relation to each other, operated as functional units. So they tended to fire at similar times. And so they, they came to recognize that these cells formed what they termed mini columns. So vertically oriented columns that ran uh, up through the surface of all of these six layers of cortex and, and functioned together. There were a lot of studies that were performed on this. Um, 
back in the 60s and 70s and 80s. And uh, one of the scientists that was involved in that, a lot of this original work was done at Johns Hopkins. Uh, one of the scientists was a man named Manuel Casanova, and he became very interested in, in looking at different patterns of mini column organization in different populations of individuals. So Manny's a very interesting guy who is board certified in neurology, pathology, and psychiatry, and uh, has just a capacious interest in human psychology and cognitive functioning. And so he compared autistic folks and dyslexic folks and folks with, with other kinds of issues like schizophrenia, but he found particular contrasts between dyslexic and autistic folks. So in autistic people, the mini columns, these vertically oriented columns that were functionally integrated, tended to be that packed very closely together, and they tended to make short-range connections in very high, high numbers between closely spaced groups. The dyslexics, on the other hand, had almost the opposite configuration where they were widely spaced from each other and they put out large connections that went to distant mini columns and other parts of the brain. And Manuel was fascinated by this uh, because it really functionally stood out to him in a completely obvious way that, that this correlated extremely well with what one saw at the cognitive and functional level with these two groups of individuals where autistic people often had these savant type abilities where they were extremely good at fine detail. You know, one example that, that he often used is the where's Waldo task, you know, where you have to find the Waldo figure in this complicated picture with hundreds or thousands of little pictures that, that autistic folks would be extremely fast in identifying that. Whereas they often had more difficulty in things where they, they needed to identify what the overall context was rather than the fine detail. With dyslexic folks, it was just exactly the opposite. It was really this, this coincidence between the physical orientation in the brain and then the functional uh, observations of these groups in terms of, of how they performed other tasks that struck him as being uh, so clearly relevant. Yeah, that was really super fascinating and interesting research that you presented uh, in the book. And it totally makes sense because it's really true that people with an autism spectrum disorder really are narrowly focused and have such a hard time with stimuli and other, other, other things in their processing field coming at them, where, like you said, people with dyslexia tend to miss those fine-tuned things and see the more of the bigger picture around them. So uh, I found that really interesting. Let's talk a little bit about learning because I think that's gonna play an important role also in our discussion. And I know you've mentioned about procedural learning, episodic learning. How are those terms and concepts important as we look at dyslexia? In terms of learning, one of the first sets of experts that really kind of couched dyslexia as a learning issue in general and not simply as an issue of decoding and spelling uh, was a, a British pair of researchers named Rod Nicholson and Angela Fawcett. They've been true groundbreakers in this area. And more recently, uh, Michael Ullman at Georgetown has, has sort of followed along and, and made uh, important contributions in this area. But it's, it's come to be recognized that this area of procedural learning is critically important to understand dyslexia. And what procedural learning is, is the ability to automate and, and make fast, efficient, and, and really uh, unthinking, the ability to perform uh, tasks that one typically learns through practice. So for example, you know, one can, can think of a piano player uh, learning a new piece of music or just picking up the instrument and how much conscious effort it takes to be able to hit all of the keys in the right order with the right uh, pressure at the right intervals in order to make music and how much more automatic that becomes over time so that at the other end of the spectrum, you get, you know, Victor Borgia up on stage cracking jokes as he's playing complicated, <laughs> complicated uh, yeah. pieces by Mozart. So the procedural learning system is really what's responsible for that process of automation or automatization. And it's been found in dyslexic folks, and this was something that, uh, that Rod and Angela did, that there's something called the cube root rule, 
that applies, which is that it takes the cube root of the number of normal practice trials that it takes to master something uh, more for dyslexic individuals on average to learn a task than, uh, than it does for folks without a procedural learning challenge. So for example, a task that would take a thousand trials to learn normally would take 10 times that long, the, the cube root of a thousand being 10, 10 times 10 times 10 is a thousand. So mm -hmm. 10 time, times a thousand is now 10,000. So obviously the more complex the task, then the, the longer the uh, difference between the lengths of time it takes to acquire mastery. And when you start thinking about the super complex tasks like writing, which involves <laughs> concept formation, it requires um, sequencing, it requires working memory to keep things in mind while you're doing all of this, it, it requires spelling of words, it requires grammar, it requires the manual process of putting the words down on paper. You get out, out to a process that's so complex to develop mastery and that, that one essentially is never able to do it comfortably with all of those steps. And, you know, spelling in English where there are all the exceptions to the sets of general rules that we have is another one of those issues where it's just about impossible to master these things. So within procedural learning, there's part of the brain pathway that's that's common to all forms of procedural learning, but there are also pathways that go to link the linguistic parts of the brain and others that go to the motor parts of the brain. And so it's common in dyslexic folks to see fine motor coordination difficulties, but you can also have the linguistic problems in terms of putting together the spelling rules, for example, without having the fine motor problems. So we'll see people with both, we'll see people with one or the other, we'll see dysgraphic people that have the motor issues, but not the language issues. So they're not really dyslexic, but dysgraphic. And the thing that goes with all of those is this problem of having difficulty mastering to the point of automaticity, uh, a complex task through practice. And practically where you'll see this, you know, we're coming up on summer break now, dyslexic kids have been shown over and over again to lose more ground over the summer because they automate more slowly. And uh, unfortunately, the, the reverse is not true where they, they lose more quickly when they don't practice. So. Mm -hmm. so I imagine in a typical educational academic environment, procedural learning is the most utilized uh, form of learning that kids need to deal with. So it must be very, very frustrating for kids with dyslexia. Yeah, absolutely. This is particularly true in the early years because it goes along with, you know, your math facts. It goes along right. with, you know, what do we do next in class? It goes along with just absolutely all of the little moment by moment, day-to-day -day types of things, you know, numerators, denominators, everything with a with an arbitrary convention. Sure. And and those aspects of learning, especially for younger people or people starting a new task, can be really painfully boring and unpleasant, learning the basic mechanics of a new thing. Once you've gotten some of it and you're getting more into the, let me have fun with it now and explore, then there's maybe some more self-motivation involved with it. But when you're learning the building blocks, I, I could just imagine how painful that must be. Absolutely true. And I think the important thing for parents and teachers to understand when you're dealing with small children who look like they're really spinning their wheels so much is that when you can't automate a task, you have to talk yourself through it. And the way that you talk yourself through it is by utilizing working memory. So you're basically giving yourself instructions through working memory. Working memory is very narrow in capacity when you're a child and uh, often narrower among dyslexic than non-dyslexic kids. But as you grow, you continually get these upgrades. So there's this kind of non-linear progress that dyslexic students make where they look like they're really struggling in the early years where everything is a basic skill that's being automated. Yeah. But over time, they get the experience and they get the upgrade in working memory so that they tend to be late blooming and they have this, this really rapid upslope later on in development. And the big problem that we see is so many kids get frustrated before they hit that upslope and they give up on themselves. Whereas if they can maintain their optimism and their confidence uh, until the point that those positive virtuous cycle things start to hit, things start to go really well for them. And it's really, really critical for people to understand that the developmental trajectory is just different for dyslexic people than it is for non-dyslexic people. Mm -hmm. 
And you also talk a bit about something called episodic memory, which I understand is important for understanding people with dyslexia as well. Would you mind speaking briefly about what, how we define episodic memory and why that's important? Long-term memory is divided into episodic and semantic categories, uh, basically. So episodic memory deals with things that happen to you or things you experience, or also things that you can imagine as experiences or events or um, you know, cases or examples. Uh, semantic memory, on the other hand, is memory that's kind of stripped of context. So it's kind of definitional memory or abstract memory or, or memory of the, the kinds uh, of things that are found in dictionary definitions. So just words defined by other words rather than exemplified or portrayed by examples or experiences. And uh, we've found that there's a there's often a very stark difference in dyslexic folks between their very strong personal episodic memory and their often weak semantic memory. And understanding how you can learn using episodic memory or memory for experience or for event or for example uh, to supplement for weak semantic memory is important because a lot of times in school to keep things simple supposedly you know, everything gets boiled down into a, into a definition or into mm -hmm. a, a simple uh, kind of package. And oftentimes that package just does not hold any informational content for a, for a highly episodic uh, person. That makes perfect sense. I remember when I was a child just getting so frustrated that I was being taught facts and, and learning information and just having a hard time wrapping my head around it because I didn't understand like, what does this look like in real life? Uh, what are these uh, chemistry equations? They're just a bunch of letters and numbers to me. Uh, what do these actually translate to in terms of uh, something real and tangible that I can connect it with? So I don't know if that's an, kind of an example of the difference there. No, ab absolutely, that's beautifully put. And you know, the, the dyslexic kid in the class oftentimes is the one who's saying, you know, why are we learning this? And it's often it's yeah. often interpreted by the teachers as a kind of challenge to authority, but it's not at all. It's really uh, it's a seeking for relevance. It's really a child who's who's kind of sliding down a muddy mountain looking for a handhold to say, you know, give me something I can hold on to here. What is this? What does this relate to that I understand? And I think that that's an incredibly uh incredibly important thing to understand about dyslexic learners. The other kind of form of memory that you mentioned uh, tangentially, there was incidental learning, which is the learning that takes place just during the course of everyday activity that you don't necessarily think of as a learning experience. And it's the, the acquisition of information whose importance or relevance you don't necessarily under, understand at that time, but you sort of keep it lodged in memory as an experience for use later. And it's been shown that folks with dyslexia and ADHD tend to be very avid collectors of this kind of episodic experience. And they don't always know exactly why it is that they're remembering things, but it just kind of sticks to them like, uh, you know, lint walking through a field where you have uh, you know, cotton seed or something. And then later on, a situation will arise where that kind of information is called for, and then they'll have it handy and available. And I think a lot of people have, you know, sort of come to believe that this may be really one of the reasons for the creativity of this population is that uh, they have all of this, these pieces, these little spare pieces sitting around in a toolbox that are just waiting to be used in situations. And so they're able to fit them into to all kinds of different things later on. This learning through experience theme comes up again and again and again with, uh, with the dyslexic folks we, we work with. So people that just were always thought of as being poor learners, but uh, who are phenomenally uh, good learners, but they just learn in a different kind of way. Yeah, so that's one thing that I really enjoyed and appreciated the most about your book is that when you're talking about this dyslexia processing style that people have, you do it in such a non-pathologizing sort of way. You make the argument that this is just a different way that some people process information, but there are these strengths and advantages to that rather than seeing it as this person has this pathological learning processing style. And I wanna dig into that a little bit. We'll talk a little bit about some of these very important 
aspects of this dyslexic style that you've noticed. But first off, like you give example after example in your book of famous people or successful people who struggled with dyslexia when they were children. And I'm wondering if you can just say a little bit about how you opened your eyes to people who have benefited and thrived because of this processing style. You know, this, this is part of the whole process that I, I mentioned that initially started with our, our clinic population was, you know, we'd be seeing a child sitting in taking tests with us struggling on things that just so many kids found uh, to be very easy. And then, you know, we'd, we'd also spend time sitting with the parents of that child that said, you know, I was just like this when I was that age, you know, but now I'm, you know, X, I'm a, I'm an entrepreneur. I've invented these things. You know, my father was the same way as I was. He invented this, for example, my business partner now in the dyslexia test company that we have is a very, very talented and brilliant dyslexic entrepreneur uh, who struggled a lot as a child in school and and really found himself uh, when he was introduced to computers and uh, to mathematics where he excelled also. He's gone on to have a phenomenally successful career as an entrepreneur. But when we first met him, he was bringing his son into our clinic for examination and uh, you know, his son was struggling with all of the usual sorts of things that dyslexic kids struggle with. And we heard from his father about how he had similar problems when he was a child, you know, and had gone on to, for example, the Zoom connection that we're on now, about half of the algorithms uh, for video compression that make it possible for us to stream video in real time like this were things that he designed. Wow. He's had two companies that have had initial public offerings. He's had a, a bunch have been acquired by private equity firms. He's had the second company just acquired by Microsoft. And, you know, this is a kid who would, could barely be kept engaged in school. His father was dyslexic, also invented the ultrasound device. And, you know, it's just, it goes on and on. This was the kind of story that just led us to start looking for these connections between the difference in, in development that characterized dyslexia and the differences in cognitive structure and, and what some of those benefits uh, could be for. And, you know, just to step back for a moment, again, I said my wife and I are MDs and, and basically, you know, in medicine, when you see something that's present in a large part of the population, historically, the tendency is to wonder why it's so overrepresented, what sort of advantage did it create to become so widely prevalent in the population? And, uh, you know, this was a sort of thinking that led to the recognition that, for example, sickle cell genes uh, had protective effects against malaria in certain parts of the world where that was endemic. This idea, why are 20% of the population dyslexic, has actually, in recent years, come to receive a lot more attention. And there was recently a paper published by a very talented uh, dyslexic anthropologist uh, from Cambridge University that uh, looked at dyslexia from an anthropological evolutionary perspective, who uh, posited a theory that evolution creates a, a group advantage for the population because of a bias towards this exploratory mindset. It's common within uh, certain fields of psychology to contrast exploration and exploitation capacities in the in the psychological underlying cognitive frameworks that make both uh, possible. And the fact that we have these explorers who are sort of big picture oriented, but sort of not focused on the little details as a subset of the population, uh, along with uh, a broader group of exploiters, you know, is potentially an optimal setup for the, the human population. We're not sitting in a completely isolated universe where every one of us is just a single individual, but we're, we're a set of people within a population. We're surviving and developing and working and living together. And I think it's really a, a wonderful thing to think that uh, these different patterns of cognition and ability that we're seeing are basically essential components of a well-functioning society and a well-functioning community of people. That's certainly how I see dyslexic folks, is, is people who provide essential services for all of us. Yeah, sure. Well, it makes a lot of sense from an evolutionary perspective. I imagine just a community of, of cavemen and women, and if they're all inventing ways to 
crack the nuts and make the fire and gather wood and just keep their little community going. Once you run out of all of that stuff, you don't have anything left. So you need those explorers and those people that are thinking outside of the box, branching out and looking for the next thing or the next technology that will allow the community to continue to survive. So I'm guessing that's sort of what you're getting at here. Very much. Yeah. So you talk a little bit about this concept of MIND, and that's an acronym for M-I-N-D, uh, with each, each of those letters referring to a different aspect of this learning style. And I'd like to dig into that a little bit with you, Brock. Tell us a little bit about MIND, and then let's start with M. Sure. So we came up with the MIND Strengths framework when we were really thinking about the, the talent sets that we saw among dyslexic individuals. And we, we basically came to it in this, the same sort of way that Howard Gardner came about defining his different uh, creativity sets in his frames of mind framework. And uh, we weren't really thinking of what he was doing at the time, but in retrospect, we really recognized we were doing the same thing. And it, it combined looking at these overall brain features that we were finding with things that we could see in, in research uh, studies, looking at cognitive level functions and, and kind of laboratory tests of cognition, along with things that we could find in the real world. So incident studies that showed that there were dyslexic folks were overrepresented, for example, in fields like uh, entrepreneurship or engineering or architecture or uh, certain of the arts and design fields putting all of those things together and then sort of looking at all of those levels simultaneously and seeing where we found clusters, we found that they, they grouped themselves fairly well into these four categories that we called MIND. And the first M uh, stands for material reasoning. And it's basically reasoning about physical properties, especially three-dimensional spatial properties of objects in space and sort of how they exist in, in spatial configurations, how they can move, what they look like when they're moving and operating. So it's this kind of highly complex three-dimensional spatial visualization ability. This correlates with, uh, again, professions that, uh, that use a lot of visual imagery. So certain kinds of physicists or engineers or mechanics or builders or you know, it can be your, your architect or the person who's uh, designing the layout for your landscaping in your yard, your plumber, uh, your carpenter, uh, et cetera, when they're you're putting your house together. So all of these mm -hmm. things where it involves three-dimensional three spatial representation. Mm -hmm. So with this material reasoning, are people who have this skill well-developed, are they the type of people who could sort of sit there, zone out, and imagine in their mind how a building might be put together or how a molecule in 3D might be arranged. Yeah, some, some of these other kinds of professions you talked about, would that be examples of that? Yeah, absolutely. And it, it, it's interesting, there is a clear division between the ability to understand mentally and to represent in your mind the three-dimensional configuration of things and the ability to visualize it clearly in pictures as if you were seeing it. And I think that that's one thing that's important for people to understand, because sometimes I think people think they don't have spatial talent because they don't make clear pictures in their head. But uh, those are things that often do go together, but they don't necessarily have to. Mm -hmm. And it's really the the ability to 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 conceptualize the three-dimensional relationships independent of seeing them that constitutes this M strength. I see. Okay. And you talk a bit when you, when you go into the discussion about the M strengths, some of the trade-offs of that people have, the places that they may struggle a little bit more when they have this particular strength. So where do they struggle? So kind of a small area where they often struggle is that we'll often see young uh, children when they're learning to read uh, who have the, the most flexible kind of mental imagination for three-dimensional uh, spatial things to have the most difficulty orienting their two-dimensional letters appropriately on the page. So oftentimes these will be the kids that are not just uh, inverting the Ds and the Bs and lowercase, but kids that are flipping them around and turning them into Ps and Qs. Mm -hmm. And 
the trade-off between this kind of three-dimensional flexibility and then uh, difficulty orienting things in two dimensions, you know, it can be right-left confusion or problems with letters on the paper. Uh, that's a common one. I think the biggest one that surprises a lot of people, but actually uh, once they think about it, uh, becomes a little more clear is the difficulty that so often exists for people that have these highly nonverbal talents uh, in putting their thoughts into words. So we'll often see people with extreme visual and, and spatial talents who, because they just conceptualize something so clearly in their mind as an image, will get tripped up when they're trying to describe it or explain it because they, you know, sometimes will forget what it is that they've said and what they haven't said. And then also just the ability to shift one's mind between you know, sort of visual and spatial mode and verbal mode is a frontal executive function ability that sometimes is a little low in some people. And so this whole issue of putting your thoughts into words uh, is, you know, describing what you can see in your head is a huge one for people with, uh, with this issue. And I think that was the most common one that came up when we were actually uh, interviewing people on this uh, who had this ability. Let's talk about interconnected reasoning or the eye strengths. Tell us about that. I think, you know, over time, we've come to recognize that sort of systems-based reasoning is kind of at the core of this. So the ability to, to see how things fit together as part of a larger system and, and relate to each other, seeing how things are connected. And those connections can be you know, physical connections, they can be conceptual connections, they can, they can be loose conceptual connections, you know, metaphorical or analogical, but it's the ability to see how things relate to each other and form a larger web rather than just kind of a, a linear set of connections or formal definitional connections. That ability to basically form these large conceptual networks is a really, uh, is a really central part of that. Mm -hmm. What kinds of careers do you tend to see people exercising these kinds of eye strengths? So these can be things that, uh, that involve, uh, you know, for example, logistics, people uh, who are trying to organize. We see a lot of the uh, celebrity chefs and things that, uh, you know, Jamie Oliver is an example, but, uh, you know, people who are celebrity chefs who are dyslexic. And sometimes people wonder how a, a person who you know, seems to have an organizational challenge in so many ways, can stand in the middle of a busy kitchen as an executive <laughs> chef and manage this, this incredible uh, mixture. But, you know, we find these same people working uh, in um, airport traffic control, in emergency rooms, as uh, logistics people in the military, and performing these same super complex tasks over and over and over again. So, you know, George Patton is a famous dyslexic visionary and his ability to synchronize the movements of a complex army and, you know, figure out where the weak point in this enemy's strategy was. I mean, these, this is an example of sort of systems-based reasoning, but we often see this in uh, systems engineers. You know, MIT has been a place historically that's been really linked with systems-based teaching, and, and it's probably not a coincidence that dyslexia at MIT is, is called the MIT disease. So it's, uh, <laughs> I think that ability. Yeah, that makes sense. And how about trade-offs with the eye strengths? So uh, a big trade-off with the eye strengths is, is that everything is connected to every, everything else. And so, you know, a common e example, the anthropologist I, I mentioned uh, who did this wonderful paper on the evolutionary perspective on dyslexia. I remember when she was a graduate student writing to us, she had the unending thesis because everything was connected <laughs> with everything else. And, and uh, we see this so, so, so often with our uh, students as they grow up and, and go into education is that they have a hard time finishing their degree requirements because they see that, you know, I could use this class over there to round out my thinking about this topic because everything is connected. There's no place to find the end of the thread in that huge ball of string. So it takes an incredible amount of discipline and planning to be able to counteract this kind of just sheer weight of creativity. Sure. How about narrative reasoning or the end strengths? So this really goes back to that episodic semantic uh, difference that we talked about before. So 
the, the narrative reasoners tend to see everything in terms of cases and examples and experiences. And so uh, when they're thinking through processes or thinking through uh, solutions to problems or thinking through cases and how things work rather than consulting uh, abstract principles. This works super well for lots of things. So um, being able to uh, to have this kind of memory works extremely well for, uh, for example, somebody in sales where they uh, remember all the different things about their conversation from the last time talking with a particular individual. Mm. Uh, it works extremely well for teachers where each of your students is not an abstraction, but a little person with a, a whole set of characteristics that you remember from previous encounters. And you've picked up all of this incidental information in interacting with them before that uh, maybe you couldn't explain immediately, you know, when they looked uncomfortable, when they were squirming in the seat, et cetera, et cetera. But now it all starts to fit together and make sense because you're, you're forming these, uh, these, these kind of accumulations of experience around, around people. Uh, works extremely well for uh, people in, in uh, your profession, in psychology or in counseling or in the ministry fields where you're trying to help people make sense of their lives and find what the central narrative and story is in their life and, and how they can um, think of their experiences and the, the cases and episodes that they live through and put those together in a coherent way. So that, uh, that kind of tendency to make everything hold together in the context of, of a real set of circumstances and events, I think is a special strength rather than abstracting things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, makes sense. Very, very interesting. And how about the trade-offs for the end strengths? The trade-off there a lot of times is having to particularize everything. And so when it comes time to, to really generalize, sometimes the process of generalization can be difficult or uh, sometimes, you know, you can, you can get so caught up in the particular aspects of a case that you don't see it as part of a larger pattern, which is a little bit um, counterintuitive since these are such good big picture thinkers, but sometimes they can get so immersed in the personal aspects of dealing with people that, um, that they can lose sight of the, of the big picture perspective. Let's talk a little bit about dynamic reasoning or the de-strengths. So the dynamic reasoning is the ability to sort of see how processes play out over time. And that can be moving forward in time or moving backward in time for you know, people in history or historical sciences. We found on insight-based processing, so rather than using principles or theories, again, in, in abstraction, it's based on this process of fitting in uh, patterns and sort of seeing how they play out. It's, it's kind of a more empirical rather than, than an abstract process. And it's based uh, often on sort of letting the mind wander and, and kind of collecting a set of facts around a particular circumstance or a particular problem, and then just kind of letting the brain float free until things kind of click together and you just see what the answer is. Yeah, I think there was an example you gave in the book about some lady, I think she was an architect or an engineer or something, and she was standing and looking out the window and her boss comes by and, I don't know, scolds her, gives her a hard time for not working. And she turns to him and says something like, hey, you do your job your, your way, I'm doing my job my way, implying that she was there working as she was pondering uh, the dynamics of whatever problem she was trying to solve. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And this whole dependence upon letting your mind wander and look for pattern matches as opposed to trying to force the issue along a set of uh, kind of, you know, deductions is just a really different way of proceeding. But it's the way that people get over chasms or gaps in knowledge that can't be bridged using existing protocols or existing theories because they haven't, you know, they haven't ever been put to this task before. It's really essential to being able to deal with novel or rapidly changing situations that you be able to make these kind of quick associations between things rather than having to kind of work your way through step by step. So it has a, a, a fantastic uh, utility and relevance, but, uh, but it's also a very different way of processing. And, uh, you know, the obvious weakness with, uh, with this one is the ability to explain how you got from step A to step B. Mm. Um, you know, the show your work problem uh, is, is a huge one. 
for folks like this. And, you know, when they get further along in their careers and they have a demonstrated track record of success, it's one thing to say, well, I just see that we should do this. I know that this is the right way to go. But when they're the junior person in the office and they have no track record and nobody has any particular reason to, to believe them, it can be extremely difficult to even get a chance to, to demonstrate that you, you know what you're talking about. Sure. Let's switch gears. Thank you for talking about the mind strengths. That all is really super interesting stuff and makes a lot of sense the way that you are conceptualizing it for a dyslexic person. Let's talk a little bit about if somebody has a dyslexic processing style or you're a parent who has a child who has one, uh, how do you advise that person to examine the mind strengths and recognize them and approach their education and their approach to life in a way that supports them and nurtures them rather than punishes them, frustrates them and disappoints them? I think that's a really important question. And the answer is a little bit, a little bit different across time. So depending upon the age of the person. So we've done a lot of research looking at the ways that individuals relate to their own mind strengths. And it's clear that during the adult years, there are a set of thinking processes that dyslexic adults identify with at much, much higher rates than non-dyslexic folks. And those will be things that relate to the mind strengths. So your spatial reasoning, nonverbal reasoning, you know, episodic versus semantic memory, the, these kinds of things that we've talked about. And there are also uh, sets of, of specific visualizable, you know, recognizable uh, strengths in real world activities that demonstrate those. So ability, you know, to read blueprints, abilities to put things together, ability, you know, to perform certain kinds of tasks in the, in the real world. But when you go back to younger ages, when we look at, at children, it's interesting that they show the same learning style characteristics. So they learn better from looking at diagrams than they do by reading written descriptions of things, or they learn better by doing than by hearing about something or reading. You know, if they're listening, they'll learn better with a conversation with somebody while they're doing something together than they will sitting in a class listening to instructions. So these same kind of learning things hold true. But the activities are not yet so obvious uh, where they can just demonstrate these abilities in tangible kind of ways as strengths. So it's very important for the adults in the lives of these children, whether they're teachers or whether they're parents, to, uh, to understand the nature of these abilities and the fact that they're late blooming and that the fact that, you know, all of these things that we talked about with practice and procedural learning and working memory development play into the ability to express these talents in tangible ways and that that you'll only see those as kids get older and become capable of expressing their potentials in in these tangible ways so it's good to start looking for signs of interest and exposing kids to the things that they seem to have a real natural avidity for and to be drawn to and uh, it's important not to necessarily expect that you're going to see these kind of amazing outputs early on. You may not see anything that separates that child from, from another child, except just their interest in the way they go about things and the kind of comprehensive way that they, that they tend to circle their interest in their activity. But they may not be putting anything out yet that seems really amazing. But follow that interest in that activity and that passion that the child has, because over time, those are the kids that we really see blossom into doing truly amazing things. You know, and like with any other children, sometimes kids are really generalist, uh, dyslexic kids like anyone else. They may be interested in a lot of things and their interests may shift around before they find something that really grabs them. And that's okay also. But uh, the, the key thing, I think, is just supporting the, the spirit of younger people. And, you know, it's going to be really obvious to them the things that they do uh, more poorly than other people. And sometimes it'll be hard for them to see the things that they do really really well. Sometimes the things that are going to be their special talent in life are things that in second grade can look like an impediment. Um, we had a, a person that we worked with that became an incredibly successful uh, journalist who was just, you know, made her living talking all day on the television. And <laughs> as a child, her teachers uh, tied her to the desk because all she wanted to do was <laughs> go around and talk to her classmates. And, yeah. You know, this is the kind of thing where it's, 
you know, it's important to recognize that the adult manifestations of these talents can look like distractions or they can look like off topic activities. Uh, and you don't always see where they're going to feed into the adult uh, accomplishment and attainment. But but it's it's important to to be open to these kinds of strengths and to understand how they may be manifesting themselves in interest at younger ages and to to support that drive in those interests. Yeah, and I would imagine that just kind of as a corollary to that, it's very important to make sure that children are not developing a poor self-esteem, feeling badly about themselves because they're not keeping up with certain areas in academia that are typically expected of them. The self-esteem um, is so important at that age for gaining a sense of, you know, I have abilities, I'm competent. I have talents that are important and people recognize that. I imagine that's something that kids with dyslexia encounter challenges around that all the time. Absolutely, and I think it's far more corrosive than people realize. Um, there've been studies on very talented adults with dyslexia and very, very successful adults that have shown that the self-esteem piece often continues to haunt them as adults or something called imposter syndrome, where people feel like they're really not deserving of their attainments, mm -hmm. that they somehow just luck their way into it. Um, we were giving a talk uh, two years ago for a foundation that was uh, set up by Prince Carl Philip of Sweden. And uh, Prince Carl Philip is dyslexic himself. And he, for many years, was, you know, voted the world's most eligible bachelor, and he swapped back and forward with Prince <laughs> Harry on that one a few times. They got, both got married, but he's unbelievably handsome. He's, of course, incredibly wealthy. He's actually also a very talented graphic designer. And when he founded his, uh, his nonprofit organization, he, he set up as its central task uh, maintaining self-esteem among dyslexic kids who mm. were bullied. Because as a student, mm -hmm. when he was dyslexic, incredibly handsome, talented guy with who, you know, one day, you know, was going to be this world figure, was bullied by his peers. Mm. And that stuck with him for his whole life. And he's, you know, confessed as he still feels these feelings sometimes of shame and inadequacy about it. Mm -hmm. It's if so you, corrosive. Yeah. yeah. If you can be the handsomest man alive and, you know, future prince of the realm right. and your self-esteem is still, is still that vulnerable. People need to understand that uh, it's really important, but, you know, I think one of the things that I'm proudest of, uh, of the impact of our work is that we're starting now to see kids in their adult years that we've worked with for you know 15 20 25 years that that have passed through this period of concept self concept development understanding that different does not mean defective who've incorporated that into their vision of themselves and are strong and resilient and positive and are just doing incredibly well in life and it's just it's not an essential feature of dyslexia at all that you need to feel shame or that you need to feel second class or that you need to feel broken and understanding that and helping kids early on to recognize that they're just growing up in a different way to do different things and to make a different kind of contribution to the world than some of the kids around them that's that's just the center of everything yeah that's such an important point brock so thank you for that let's just spend a few moments i want to just ask you about reading and writing in school, because that's obviously something that a lot of kids with dyslexia are going to struggle with. And you devote some time in the Dyslexic Advantage talking about that. It's a reality, right? Most kids who are going to school are going to have to do reading, they're going to have to do writing, uh, and uh, may struggle with this. So do you have some words of wisdom on that? So the uh, it, it's very important to differentiate between the, the time in class that one spends learning to read and learning to write and the time that one spends you know, reading in order to acquire information and writing uh, to, to communicate information. And for kids that have problems mastering the basic skills of reading and writing, it's absolutely critical first to support them in developing those skills, but second, in not allowing the problems with those skills to bleed over into every aspect of the curriculum so that they uh, they become uh, 
behind in, in every one of their classes. So mm. it's very common for, for dyslexic students to do extremely well in the parts of the class that uh, require involvement in the discussion and, uh, you know, in oral sharing or in project-based learning, uh, but to struggle if they have to convey all of the things that they've learned through writing, uh, particularly within a you know, a certain length of time on a test or a quiz or something like that, separating out the whole nature of the task, that's the core feature of the task, is really important. So on the reading side, if we're practicing decoding, if we're practicing uh, reading fluency, oral reading so that we can read quickly, then by all means have the child read. If we're, if we're being given a book in order to acquire information about social studies or something else, and I'm having problems reading fast or well enough to get the information out of it, then that kid should have somebody who's reading to them, or they should have a book on tape or a text-to-speech reader. Uh, there's all kinds of technology now that, uh, that can make any printed material accessible uh, to anyone who's a, a reading-impaired uh, person, so there's no reason to prevent that. And similarly on the output side, you know, for kids with procedural learning challenges that impact the motor functions and they've got a narrow working memory, those kids may not write a complete sentence until they're in high school. And that should be recognized as their developmental pattern. It's predictable when you look at those kids in second or third grade that they're, they're going to be on a completely different path. And that should be built in to the planning for that child all the way along. They should be instructed in how to develop those skills, but it should be recognized that they're not going to be at the, at the level that they can fully express the complexity of their understanding until they're quite a bit further along in development. So there's a, there's a lot of catching up that the educational establishment needs to do to, uh, to get up to speed with what's known about developmental differences in these areas. Yeah, and I also want to make the point that you referenced several examples in the dyslexic advantage of people who grew up with dyslexia who became writers. And I think because of their mind strengths were assets to them in their be able to exercise their creative process and write, and they just absolutely love the writing. Yeah, absolutely. And for, for many of them, it was a late acquired skill. Uh, you know, we, we shared the example of a couple uh, that still in college were getting very low marks on their, on their written product, uh, and yet went on to sell tens of millions of, of copies of books as adult writers. Amazing. Brock, are there any final thoughts that you want to share with us on the subject of dyslexia or anything that we've talked about? You know, I think the core, the core message for us is that we're really talking about, uh, about a totally functional kind of human difference that uh, is best approached from the standpoints of what these individuals can do rather than what they struggle with. And it's only kind of a historical accident that we identified the, the common features that are shared by this group of individuals from the deficit perspective rather than from the strengths perspective. And uh, it's, it's really time for an inversion of, of thinking on this. And, you know, if I can leave you with just one story, um, you know, it's, it's become very easy for us uh, to, to be able to identify, uh, you know, public figures who are dyslexic on the basis of something special about their, their product, their way of thinking and approaching things. And, you know, when we were writing when we were writing the dyslexic advantage on the eye strengths, one person we really wanted to feature in the book was a man named David Kelly, who's well known as a, a designer and uh, the founder of the design school at Stanford, where he's still a professor and the founder of the, of the highly influential firm IDEO in Silicon Valley, which promotes design-based thinking. And we were sure that he was dyslexic because of just the way he approached everything. And we searched everywhere we could find to find references uh, where he talked about it. And we couldn't find anything. And then as soon as the galleys were in, in uh, preparation and the book was about to be published, I found myself talking at an event where he was also talking. And I went to listen to his talk and somebody asked him, you know, this, he's, this is great stuff you're presenting. Have you written any of this down? And he said, no, I'm horribly dyslexic. I never write anything if I have it, if I can avoid it. And it's like, you know, it's that could have had a, a V8 moment for us. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, 
it's it's just as easy to identify dyslexic people on the basis of cognitive abilities as it is on the basis of of disabilities. We yeah. we created uh, screeners using the research that we did on the mind strengths, and we found that we could identify the same group of people uh, equally as well with a strength based questionnaire as a as a challenge based questionnaire. Amazing, yeah. amazing, and I think that that is the most incredible contribution that you're making with this book, Brock, the idea that you're talking about the contributions and the strengths that people with dyslexia have, rather than looking at it from a pathologizing point of view. And I really, really appreciate that. I think it's so important. And I would just highly recommend anybody to read this book, The Dyslexic Advantage, uh, and um, works that you are doing. If you're a parent, or you're a person who has dyslexia, or you're wondering, uh, it's just such an important way of conceptualizing dyslexia that's different from the way we've looked at it in the past. So thank you so much for your contribution to this. And I've really enjoyed the conversation with you. I think the listeners to this episode will be um, absolutely fascinated and enthralled with the information. So thanks for coming on the show, Brock. Yeah, thank you. It's been a pleasure to be here. Thank you for listening to Mind Tricks Radio. I hope you have enjoyed the program. For more information about Mind Tricks, you can go to my website, www.waikikihealth.com. Be sure to subscribe to Mind Tricks on your preferred podcasting host to be notified of new episodes of Mind Tricks. Please take some time to give Mind Tricks a good rating and review wherever you are listening. It really helps get the word out to new listeners. And please like and share Mind Tricks posts on Twitter and Facebook by following your host, Dr. Aaron Kaplan.